So here we are again on, on our series, Power for Salvation. Um, not one of those things that we're, it's not that we're trying our best to teach you theology as much as it is to teach us all to think theologically. Now that sounds like a, a undertaking we don't want to do. You know, there was the big statement when I was younger, everybody, you don't give me theology, just give me Jesus. Well, I think, well, I can't give you Jesus without theology. It doesn't work because that's what it's all about. But, but it's not this we're trying to learn big words. We're trying to say, how do these truths impact who we are on a daily basis? Now, I'm going to go ahead and warn you, you're going to have two different sections of Scripture today, so you can go ahead and look those up and mark them. Um, because I probably won't give you a lot of time when we shift to, to shift. Um, but so we, if you turn in your Bibles to Romans 3 and Hebrews 10. Um, so as, we, as we're thinking about this, though, and we're thinking about this series, you know, we talked about the, the um, iceberg illustration. And the whole point of all of that is, as a church... As the church, our goal should never be just to change behaviors. That's the goal of psychologists. That's the goal of the penal system. I mean, it's all, it's to change behaviors. But that's not what it's all about. The idea is our behaviors change because our thought process changed. We begin to think theologically. We begin to think as God would have us to think. So our theme verses, Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous one shall live by faith. See, I think over the years, I mean, I can remember as a kid, and I grew up in church, sometimes it was a little confusing as to what the gospel really was. Because sometimes the gospel was presented as just try harder and just be good and be moral. Well, you know, there's a lot of people that I know that are good and moral who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it's really not a matter of being good. It's not a matter of trying to try harder or do our best. It's the power of God that saves us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. That right now, because of what we'll be talking about today, we're no longer under condemnation because of what Christ accomplished for us. And as we grow and we learn more and more, we eventually get to the point where sin no longer has that same power over us. We can walk with the Lord. We can begin to put things aside. Paul says, you know, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is is common to man. And God is faithful, who with the temptation will provide the way of escape. So it's always this idea that we don't have to give in. Every year I kind of write at the top of my journal a theme for the year. Usually it comes about in the first week or two, first two or three days of the year. And this year, the top of my journal entry, I have two words. No obligation. Because in Romans, in the message, it says I have no obligation to sin. I'm not required to. And we tend to think that we are required to. We have to, but the power of God for salvation gets us out of that power of sin. 
takes us that away. But Job asks a question very early on that's a, a fun question. How can a man be in the right before God? You know, I, we, we mentioned it a few weeks ago. Um, R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite clips that I saw with him, he was older at the time. I think he already had his oxygen tubes up his nose and those things. But he's sitting on a panel with uh, all these different theologians in a group of pastors. And after about the third or fourth time of someone saying, but isn't it unfair for God to punish all of mankind because of one sin? Because Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. That seems a little harsh. Eternal punishment for Adam and Eve eating the fruit seems kind of harsh. Excuse me. So several of the guys tried to answer the question. And R.C. Sproul finally kind of raised his hand and said, let me just ask you a question. What's wrong with you people? And he just went off on this tirade after that. He's saying, you're saying to me that a holy God, a God who cannot look upon sin, a God who can't be in the presence of sin, gives you everything you need and gives you one thing not to do, and you look him in the face and do it anyway, and you get upset by his punishment? What's wrong with you people? And I think sometimes as we begin to think this, how can we be in the right before God? It's, It's not that we can do anything to be in the right before God. It's because of what he has done for us that we can be in the right before God. We stand not on our own strength, not on our own abilities, but because of what he's done. Because if it's up to us, that one sin, which sounds like a a bad thing, that God would be so mean to punish us for that one sin. But according to Paul in Romans 5, because of that one sin, we are all in Adam. We have all sinned. We're all in there. And so we... We have all offended a holy God. And we don't like to think about that, but let's think about what does is, what is sin do to God? You say, well, that sin doesn't do anything to God. Well, it does. Scripture says that God is too pure to look upon sin. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All sin offends a holy God. All sin. See, we tend to think of the biggies. But we know this sin offends God. But everything, every sin we commit offends a holy God. And so as we begin to look at Romans 1, thank you, 1 through 3, as Paul goes through the list of sins, we see some and we go, boy, I'm glad that's not me. I'm not in that sin. Just keep reading the list. And if he doesn't list something that you're struggling with, he goes on to say, well, you may not be struggling with those things, but if you're judging everybody else who's struggling with those things, you're just as bad. And he says, well, you know, if you're judging everybody else, but may, 
you know, you're a Jew or you're, you're a Christian, you've grown up in church, you have the Bible, you're okay. No, no, afraid not. He says everybody is sin. No one is good enough. And all sin offends a holy God. And then he says in verse 19, all sin ignores the holy God. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. C.S. Lewis said, it's not so much that we purposefully think I want to sin against God, it's that we don't think about God at all. We think he's not paying attention. He's not even in our thought process when we're tempted to sin. We go, well, you know, I'll deal with that later. If we even think of him at all. So he's saying, God's made it obvious. Now, he hasn't made it obvious in the sense that we can look at creation and come to know Christ, but we can look at creation and know I'm not it. And I need something. And I need this person who's created all this. And so we begin to, to sit and think, how, so he's, we've offended this holy God. We've ignored this holy God. But what does sin do to man? In our passage in Romans 3, and Brian handled it very well last week. We're going to talk about it a little bit more this week, not to correct Brian, but just to build on what Brian said. He says in Romans 3, verse 23, passage we're all familiar with, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not only does sin offend a holy God, sin alienates us from God. We are his enemies, Scripture says. We have no relationship with him. It's not, well, I was born in the United States, so I'm a Christian, and I, go to, I'm a, I live in a Christian nation, so everything's okay, and I grew up in church. No. Without Christ, we are alienated from God. We have no relationship whatsoever with Him. It also, that same passage, all sin corrupts man thoroughly. Now, there's a big theological uh, term, or two terms that we use. Total depravity. And we use that terminology, we go, man, what's he saying? Well, he's not saying... We're as bad as we possibly can be. But he says we do have the possibility to be as bad as we possibly can be. That every area of our lives is affected by sin. There's nothing from head to, to foot on my body that is not possible to sin. Matter of fact, Romans 3, when he talks about no man is good... He goes on and he says, their throats are evil and they walk to shed blood from the head to the toe. Totally depraved. Total, and we say, we use that word depraved meaning, you know, we think of the, the rapist or the murderer and those kind of things. But depraved just means we have no relationship with God. We have offended the holy God. And he says, we're, we're alienated from God. All sin corrupts us as thorough as it can corrupt us. Without Christ, there's nothing about us that's good. And then verse six, chapter 6, verse 23, says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It says all sin condemns man before the world. 
We all stand guilty. Brian talked about it last week. It's not that we are not guilty. It's that we're declared not guilty. We are guilty of the sin, but because the shed blood of Christ, God the Father looks at us and says, I declare you not guilty. There's a difference between, as Brian said, there's a difference between me and be, me being innocent. They arrest me and they find out, hey, no, we were wrong. Sorry, we arrested the wrong person. I'm innocent of that crime. But if I'm arrested and I committed the crime and someone pays the penalty for me, then I'm declared not guilty. I still did the crime, but I'm declared not guilty. And so we're we're seeing this idea that we stand before, we all have sinned. And according to chapter 1, verse 18, what's God's response to sin? What did we read just a couple minutes ago? It's a little five-letter word that we don't like to use. Starts with a W. (laughs) Wrath. Because of our sin, God's response is wrath. We don't like to talk about wrath of God. We like to think of the wrath of God as an Old Testament idea, right? I hear it all the time. Well, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And I go, well, you're not reading your Bible. Because the God of the Old Testament was both, God of wrath and a God of love. The God of the New Testament is a God of wrath and a God of love. But but we tend to think of wrath like we tend to think of our own anger and sinfulness. Someone pulls out in front of me in traffic, I'm wrathful, I'm angry. My kids do something they're not supposed to do, I'm wrathful. That's me and my sin. God's wrath is not this fly off the handle kind of thing. God's wrath is saying, this is sin. You have offended me as a holy God. Sin must be punished. It's not a a flying off the handle. It's not this this craziness. It's it's an intense hatred for sin. Wayne Grudem said this. God's wrath means that he intensely hates sin. Now, we say from time to time, I hate sin. What do we mean by that? I I hate your sin. I like mine. I hate your sin. God hates all sin. And so we don't like to think about this. We don't like to think about God hating something. That's, That's not good news. I mean, we're trying to talk about the power of God for salvation. Wade, you're being awfully negative this morning. Well, that's good. Because Robertson McQuilkin says this, Until the ears of the heart are opened with the thunders of Sinai, one will never hear the sweet grace notes of Calvary. Big mouthful, what does that mean? Sinai is where the Ten Commandments were given. And until we hear and understand the standard we're supposed to measure up to, and we realize and understand we don't measure up to that standard, then we recognize how powerful Calvary is. That Christ has made it possible for us to live that standard. To measure up to that standard, not because of who we are, 
but because of who he is. Now, let's go to Romans chapter 3, where we were last week. Romans 3, 23 through 25 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, three big words here. We talked about last week, we talked about justification. As we think about these three words, I really want you to kind of think three, three concepts. Justification is dealing with the law court. That we are guilty of sin, Christ died for our sins, we are declared not guilty. We're justified by our faith in what Christ has accomplished for us. Then he uses the word redemption, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. But redemption is the idea of the slave market. If you remember the book of Hosea, Hosea's told, it seems like a crazy thing. The prophets are sometimes called to do crazy things. God calls Hosea to go and marry a prostitute and bring her into his home. Then she decides, not only does she not want to be married to Hosea, and not only does she want to go back into prostitution, but she's going back and she's paying the men to be with her. And she eventually gets to a point where she runs out of money and now she's on the slave market. She's there as a slave to her sin. And God tells Hosea, go buy her back. Go redeem her and bring her back into your home. And that's an analogy of our life with Christ. That we choose to pay to get ourselves into sin to the point where now we're trapped. We're on the slave block. And Christ paid the penalty, paid the price to restore us, to bring us back into a right relationship with him. And then we come to today's word, propitiation. Big word, there we think of the temple. Because if we think through the Old Testament, remember we did Leviticus, I think it was last year, maybe the year before. We did Leviticus where it talks about the different sacrifices. That because of these things, the, the people had to bring a lamb or a, a ram or birds to sacrifice for their sins. And that's the idea is when the blood was shed and poured out on the mercy seat, their sins were propitiated. Propitiation is just a big word of saying satisfaction. When Christ died and his blood was shed, God's wrath was propitiated, which we'll talk about a little bit more as we go along. So propitiation, Wayne Grudem says, is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. As Brian talked about last week, and we looked there in verse 25, God had to punish sin. To be just, to be holy, He had to deal with sin. He dealt with sin with Christ. Christ paid the penalty for us so that we could have God's favor. Verses 25 and 26. This was to show God's righteousness because in his forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one 
who has faith in Jesus. In his forbearance, he passed over former sins. Sounds like he let everybody get away with it. You know? Everybody was sinning, and he just kind of passed it over. Oh, boys will be boys. No. What Paul is saying there is, instead of every time someone sinned, smacking you down, kind of let, let, let that leash go out a little bit further. Let that leash go out a little bit further. And he stored it up so that on his son, on the cross, all those sins were poured out on Christ. He didn't look over sin. He stored it up so that from the very beginning, from before the foundation of the world, the plan was all of God's wrath would be poured out on his son on a tree outside of Jerusalem so that we can have faith in him and trust in what he's accomplished for us. We saw it from the very beginning. Adam and Eve are told, if you eat of the fruit, you'll die. They ate of the fruit, and they lived. But they died spiritually, and things began to pile up. The sins began to pile up. Paul in says this, Because of his holiness, God cannot overlook sin, and God does not overlook sin. The death of Christ was sufficient in providing atonement for sin so that God's holiness and justice are satisfied. He passed over sins in the past because the plan from the beginning was to pour out his wrath on his son for you and for me. Now we hear that all the time. But stop and think about that. That that the cross was not an afterthought. The cross was not plan B. From before the foundation of the world, Christ was crucified. The plan was always that the wrath of God would be poured out on his son so that you and I could walk free. Let's just do a quick summary. The offense, all have sinned. The offended, we all fall short of the glory of God. He's the one that's offended. The offenders, every stinking one of us. The payment for the offense, Jesus as the propitiation. See, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God doesn't say he made it possible for Jesus to sin. doesn't say he made it tempting for Jesus to sin. It says he made him sin. He took our sin on that cross 
so that we might have the righteousness of God. It was an exchange. The Son took the wrath so that we don't have to and we can have the righteousness of God. He made the difference. He's the one who changed it for us. There's four passages in the New Testament that use this big word propitiation. We looked at one right now. Romans chapter 3. So let's look at the others. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. How much greater love do we need? We think God owes us something. My life is not what I thought it was going to be. Poor pitiful me, God's mean. No. If I got what I deserved, that's not a good thing. But because of his love, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to pay the penalty for us, to, again, as we said, to propitiate God's wrath, to satisfy God's wrath. And Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. He took care of it. He became the mercy seat where the blood was poured out. He poured his blood out on the mercy seat. He took care of our sin for us. And he could only do that by becoming one of us. He had to die as a man. And he came and he took, that, he took care of our sins. This is why we talk about it. It's the power of God for salvation. Because now I have the ability, because Christ lives in me, I have the ability to live this salvation that he's provided for me. It's not just salvation from hell. It's salvation to live to honor Christ. It's salvation to allow Him to work in and through me so that He can be reflected. His glory can be shown all over the world because of what Christ has accomplished. And then He says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He says, I'm writing these things. What things is he writing? Just prior to that, he said, if any of you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. But he also says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But he doesn't tell us we have an advocate and, and the one who provided propitiation for us so that we can sin. He's not saying, I'm giving you an excuse now. He's saying, you're going to sin, just admit it. He just said just a few verses earlier, if you say I'm not going to sin, you're, you're nuts. You're going to. But he's saying, when you sin... It's not the end of the world because you have an advocate. 
that you've got to go to that advocate doesn't do me any good if I'm arrested for a crime and I'm sitting in jail and I never call a lawyer to stand up for me and go, he needs some help here. I have an advocate. I go to him and I go, I know I sinned. I know I offended the holy God. But Christ is my propitiation. Christ paid the penalty for me. He became sin so that I might be the righteous God. He's my advocate before you, Father. So it's not giving me an excuse to sin, but it's giving me a reason to not give up hope, to not quit when I sin, but to go to Him and confess my sin and trust Him to take me through. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 12 through 18, we talk about our worldview changing. This should change our worldview. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he was perfected for all time, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. A lot of statements made there. But what it does is it changes our worldview that says, you know what, it's not, I can't be good. I don't have to try to be good. The sacrifice has already been paid for me. But not only that, he writes in my heart and in my mind the truth of God. Paul says in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's that now it's not a matter of me looking at the standard of the Ten Commandments or all the other Old Testament laws and trying my best to meet up to them. That was never the goal. But I look at the standard now and I go, I can't make it, but I don't have to. Because Christ did it for me. And now His, his words and His thoughts and his, are in my heart. That's the worldview change. As I begin to think his thoughts, I begin to to process his heart so that my beliefs change and my values change and my behaviors change because I'm, I'm now allowing him to work in me. So what does that look like? Verses 19 through 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, our time with the Lord should change. Because we understand the propitiation. It's not a matter of having a quiet time. It's not a matter of trying our best to 
spend time with the Lord and, and check it off a list. It's because now, because he's given me his heart, he's given me his mind, he's paid the penalty for me, I don't have to go and worry about what I say. I don't have to go and think, I'm not gonna, this isn't the right. I go now with confidence. Not based in who I am, but based in who Christ is. My time with the Lord is different. Because now I'm talking to my father. And I can only call him my father because my brother died for my sins. And I now his wrath has been satisfied, been propitiated, so that I can have this walk with him. So my time with the Lord changes. Then he says in verse 21, I think I've read through 21 already, but since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22 is what that should be, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, not only does my time with the Lord change, but my love for the Lord changes. He says to draw near to Him. And most of the time when we mess up, the last thing we want to do is be around the person we messed up with. Think about it as a, 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 a child with your parents. And you do something you know your parents are upset with you about. It's a lot easier to go hide in your room. Husbands and wives, tick off your spouse. I don't want to talk about it. Somebody at church ticks you off and you see them at Walmart. Got to go down a different aisle. Afraid to talk to them. We avoid people. And sometimes we avoid God the same way. But he says, draw near to God. Because we love him, we want to restore that relationship. That's what, Paul, that's what John's talking about when he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. We're restoring a relationship that's been broken because we've sinned. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So, so our confidence changes and we spend time with the Lord, but our love for the Lord changes also. And then he says, verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Still, this, this idea that we now begin to live without fear, our confidence, we, we, our time with the Lord changes, our love for the Lord changes, and our confidence in the Lord changes. We hold fast the confession. Paul says in Colossians, hold fast to the head. It's this idea that I'm, I, I'm not letting go. He's already told me he's not going to let go of me, but now I'm not letting go. I can live without fear. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, that I want everyone to look at us in this way, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. And really when it comes down to it, I don't really care what everybody else thinks. I don't even care what I think. I know what God thinks. 
And so we come to him in confidence because of what he's accomplished for us, because of what he says we are. What does he say we are? We read it a few minutes ago in 2 Corinthians. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We can come in confidence. But it's not just our relationship with the Lord that changes. Verse 24 says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Our relationship with each other changes. You know, it's what we throw around the terminology accountability. You've heard me say I prefer the word investment. But the stirring up one another to love and good works is that idea that I'm constantly trying to help you, you're constantly trying to help me to be all that God's called us to be. But too often we get upset when someone says, hey, you know, you might need to fix this. Or we love somebody and we need, know they need to fix something and we get ticked off at them rather than loving them and coming beside them and putting our arms around them and trying to help them carry, to get through it. Even if it's an offense against us. We've got to come alongside and put our hand in to stir up one another to love and good works. You know, there's nothing that stirs you up to do the right thing at school if you go to the principal's office and they smack you in the hand. Or those of us who are young enough to remember, old enough to remember when they actually could punish you in school. I can remember in Kentucky, the teachers had this thing hanging on the wall that was wooden and they were allowed to use it. Now, it motivated me because I didn't want to get spanked with that paddle, but that spanking never made me love that teacher. <laughs> it made me frustrated, it made me fearful of the teacher. So it's not that we are out there to punish one another. We're out there to come alongside, to recognize that you're going down a path that is going to destroy you, and because I love you, I don't want you going down that path. I'm here to stir you up to love and good works. And then verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is not, is not, let me say it one more time, this is not, a passage for pastors to browbeat their people to show up on Sunday morning. It's been used that way. We've got a lot of empty seats this morning. We've got to call everybody and go, oh, you're sinning. It says not to neglect the assembling of yourselves together. I've heard that all my life. Is Sunday morning an important time? Yes, it is. It's a time where we come together and encourage one another and worship the Lord and, and enjoy our time together and our time with the Lord. But the issue is, he wasn't talking about when they meet together on Sundays. He's talking about pouring into one another's lives, meeting together, sharing one another. The lifestyle changes. It's now a matter of I have responsibility for you, you have responsibility for me. Everybody always quotes Cain, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. We're in this together. We're to encourage one another. We're to meet together. Not just always this. This is important. 
but coffee together, lunch together, dinner together, getting together to walk on the, the river walk and pray together, getting together and to say, hey, I'm really struggling right now. Can you pray for me? It's investing in one another's lives. Meeting together to do that. We can't invest in one another if we only see each other on Sunday mornings for an hour and a half. It's not investment. That's Lions Club. You know, we've got to invest in one another. Praise team, if you'll come on up. As we go through chapter 10, the writer begins to talk about some rough stuff. He says, you know, if, if people got in trouble for trampling underfoot the old covenant, how much trouble are we going to get in for trampling underfoot the new covenant? But then he finishes up with verse 31. Excuse me, verse 39. I, my typing was terrible. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's saying, there is that possibility. In, in Hebrews 10, he's saying there is the possibility that we trample underfoot the blood of Christ. There is the possibility that we sin. Another passage there in verse 26 that everybody tends to abuse. He says, if we go on sinning willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. People say, see, you can lose your salvation. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying, if we sin willfully, it's not like in the Old Testament. We sin willfully and we go offer sacrifice. Sin willfully, go offer sacrifice. Sin willfully, go offer sacrifice. If you're sinning willfully, it's not a matter of going back and offering sacrifice. Sacrifice has already been made. You're now trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. But in the midst of being negative, the writer comes back to go, but we're not of the ones who shrink back. We're not of the ones who quit. We're the ones who encourage one another and walk together to what God's called us to do. Why? Because the wrath of God, which should be poured out on every one of us, was poured out on Christ. And as the high priest, he paid the penalty. So that now we can have confidence before him and we can encourage and strengthen one another and not shrink back. Not because we are tough and we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but because we are not shrinking back because we have Christ in us, working through us, and as a body working together in us so that we can be all that God's called us to be. Propitiation is not just so we can sit back and talk about big words. Is that Christ became sin for me so that I can be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this terminology sometimes still seems a little out there for us. But I pray, Lord, that as we process what it means, That we no longer have to live in fear. That we don't have to, as the popular saying goes, is we do something wrong, well, let's move away because lightning may strike. 
we, we don't have to live that way. We also don't have to live in sin. We don't have to give in. We have no obligation to sin. Because of what Christ has accomplished for us. We don't have to shrink back. Help us as a body, as city church. Help us as part of the big body of Christ. Help us as brothers and sisters to encourage one another, strengthen one another, to live this way so that the world can see what you have accomplished in our lives. The world can see that we don't have the power to do it on our own. But the world will see that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.